Hello, 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 and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you both want and need. I am Lindsay Gibbs, and I am joined here today by two out of my four favorite co-hosts, Jessica Luther in Texas and Dr. Brenda Elsie up in New York. How are you two doing? Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, very well. Thanks. So today we are going to be talking about Earth Day and the environment and feminism and justice. All of those things intersected. Clubs in Bundesliga are trying to figure out how to subsidize uh, public transportation. And that's huge because of all the of all the way that global football impacts the environment, it's the travel. But first, I want to take a second because we've had in the time since recording our last episode, the rise and the fall <laughs> of a the European Super League. So it is not it is not often that. You know, we miss news between episodes a lot, but it's rare that it's the entire existence <laughs> and collapse of a league, right? Like that's, that's, we didn't even take any time a off. A super league a even. super league. <laughs> um, of course, to hear more about the super league, to get all the info about it, uh, for our interview, Shireen talked to Faduma Olau. And Brenda showed up in that interview as well to talk a little bit about the ins and outs of this Super League. But for now, we want to take a second and with the three of us, relive some of the most memorable moments of the rise and fall of the European Super League. Brenda. That's such a hard question, Linz. There are so many almost... Probably every minute it was happening (laughs) was a new favorite moment. But it's a tie between the fact that the Super League, and we should really mention this on the show, still technically exists. There are three teams that may go on to rival the Champions League. Super. They're super. super. (laughs) They're super. So that thought of them actually trying to play just continuously gives me hope and joy. And the second one is when... JP Morgan, which had put forward $5 billion for this, um, apologized and said kind of like, we didn't know people liked football so much. (laughs) Like, if you think like the winners and the smartest people win at capitalism, then you would be really wrong. It's just like, how? So very, very quick explaining is like these, the best, the best teams Moneyed. Or the yeah. most, you know, financially sound and successful teams in European in European soccer, uh, run by these billionaires, were like, we want to create a whole new system. We're gonna create a locked league, and everyone's just gonna fall in line, even though we haven't talked to fans about this, we haven't really talked to players, like we haven't done anything. Um, and they announced it on Sunday night, and it was pure, pure. Uh, chaos. Jess, uh, what are you going to remember most from this, um, you know, this time? I felt really validated in my initial reaction, which was, I am not going to learn anything about this. I don't want to understand it. I don't care that much about European men's (laughs) soccer. And I certainly am not going to get like, upset about the (laughs) biggest, most moneyed sport, like having this existential crisis uh it couldn't escape it i mean i did eventually accidentally figure out what was happening i agree with brenda one of my favorite parts is the billionaires having to apologize for 
the fact that they've invested billions of dollars in the sport and then being like, I we didn't understand that all these people cared so much about it. It's like, why did you invest in this sport? I mean, in my not my non-cynical part of me, kudos to the fans of the teams of these super league, you know, the possible super league teams yes. for being yes. as upset as everybody else and demanding and protesting that this thing not happen. Cause in theory they would have benefited, I guess. I mean, obviously the fans didn't feel like they were going to benefit, but even they were really, really upset about what was happening here and about the importance of relegation and all the sort of stuff that makes European soccer, soccer in general, uh, special. And that I thought was great, but, uh, yeah, I just seeing all these men, so many men, not just men, but a lot of men <laughs> freak out about this possible change and like how their teams would suddenly be not part of the Super League and like how that feels as fans of women's sports. It just was, you know, deeply ironic. And I enjoyed that. Yeah, it was it was a lot um, to say one of the things and I know we we, we talk about this, but like they, they hadn't even thought about the women's teams involved in this. Like when they like nobody had thought about how this would like impact women's football at all and like I didn't even have time to get mad about that because it was like over before like it even like got there (laughs) (laughs) but I want to read that this is from uh James Benj over at CBS Soccer so he writes as a Super League collapse on Tuesday night there was a curious document flying around European football Surely it could not be entirely real. Who would send a docx file, typos and all, out to announce the collapse of this grand sporting endeavor? It's 2021. <laughs> Stick your logo on it, get it edited, and PDF it. Uh, but English clubs had left the party. Do the pressure out on them. That's the typo written sentence. An announcement that said they were uh, reconsidering next steps, but teams were sprinting to the door. Uh, he called this the defining moment of the remarkably ramshackle branding that came with the most disruptive moment in sport for a generation. The Super League clubs proposed a radical reimagining of what football could be. They did so on a website that looked like it had been knocked off a middle school project due in 15 minutes, topped with a logo that screams, it looks like you're trying to brand a new competition that will irrevocably uh, disrupt European sport. Would you like help? And once again... They had hired one of the most powerful communications firms in the world for this. They had $5 billion. um, It was just just like, what a mess. And uh, just glorious, honestly. I would like to see JP Morgan take just a fraction of that money and put it into the women's game. It just. The return would be so huge. Someone talk to these men with all this money and let them know, please. Thank you. (gasps) Okay. Well, you know, we will really never forget um, this time because the schadenfreude involved in it was so much fun uh, to experience. Um, It is great to see billionaires climb to the highest diving board and then face plant in front of everyone because they never actually learned how to dive before leaving. So our main segment today is actually an idea from one of our flamethrowers. We want to thank um, all of our flamethrowers and remind you to send us ideas because we are often open to them. Um, So we got Maddie Orr who wrote into us about, you know, thinking about Earth Day and kind of 
a sports and feminism and intersectional context. And uh, Maddie has recorded uh, a little bit of an intro. So we're going to hear from her to open up this segment. Hi, Burn It All Down community. My name is Maddie Orr. I'm a sport ecologist, which means I study climate change in sport. And I'm so excited to just be chatting a little bit about Earth Day and why I think it's really relevant to the women in sport context. Um, You know, when we think about Earth Day, we think about sustainability and climate change. And it's important to note that in the context of the sports sector, women are leading the way on sustainability. And this is at the professional level, at the college level, and in the lower levels of club and community sport. Um, When you look at who's taking care of really pushing the sustainability agenda and ensuring that it's inclusive and intersectional, um, you see a lot of women in that space. And, And it's really an exciting time to be working in sustainability and sport because the women are really rallying around that. We also know that you know, climate change impacts women first and worst. And sport is no exception. If you think about, you know, how when events get canceled because of bad weather, um, often the sports sector will bend over backwards to make sure that the men's sports events get moved or postponed or pushed inside um, and the women's events just get canceled. And so I think it's really interesting to think about how Earth Day fits into this narrative um, and to consider that when bad climate events hit and communities are traumatized, Um, It's also the women who take on the emotional labor of putting that community back together. And there's no climate conversation worth having, in my opinion, um, or no Earth Day conversation worth having that doesn't also address those racial and gendered implications of how climate hazards hit communities and hit sports in particular, um, and how we respond to those situations and how women really are at the forefront of that, both in terms of who gets hit first and worst and who is the first to respond. So, Brenda, I want you to, as our uh, historian on on call today, um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the history of this intersection. Uh, take us back in time a bit. So there's a whole field of philosophy and activism that generally is called ecofeminism, though people can refer to it in, in a lot of different ways. Um, basically, the, the woman who coined the term Francois de Bon, who is a French philosopher and was also an anarchist, thinks about the very idea of domination and that it's a it's got to be a feminist project to think about unjustified domination and that that is perpetuated and reflected in the way that humans have been in relationship with the environment, the earth and animals. And so that the logic of prioritizing profit over beings, um, of exhausting resources, of depleting everything in the name of surplus, that that very idea, that that concept is at the core of patriarchy and is that very same thing is part of what continues to be the logic of um depleting the earth's resources. So 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 it's really kind of interesting. And you know, we always have to be mindful of that, you know, in the global south, the women there are even further affected um by this already and have been at the forefront um of these movements, you know, that started in the 1970s in places like Kenya where they were working against deforestation. So, uh it's a really interesting and exciting field that kind of 
you know, continues to come up with great work. But I just think, you know, that fundamental idea about domination and the way that you're going to solve climate change has to be with like a feminist lens of thinking about exploitation, domination and, you know, capitalist surplus. Like, I, I hate to say it, but that's what it is. Like, you just need to consume less shit and care. Um, and there's just that's just a thing. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's important to just kind of realize how big of an issue this is in the sports world. We know how big it is in the world world, but um, with these mega events that we love, you know, we we talk about the problems with the way they treat uh, the unhomed, the way they treat, you know, all marginalized communities, the way they use these emergency building declarations to forget about everything. But, you know, there's so much environmental impact that these mega events have. I remember studying ones that like, and I think I actually talked to No Olympics uh, LA organizers on Burn All Down about this, was that because a lot of the stuff for the Olympics is for counts as like kind of this emergency building. Like it goes to, they don't have to do the same environmental impact studies about mm. the things that they're building. Um, and even something as little as that, that I, I had, you know, I never even thought about the way that you can use these uh, mega events and the urgency that politicians put on hosting them as a way to, you know, surpass laws that the very minimum standard laws we have even right now to kind of go after this. But Jess, kind of just like remind us where these mega events fit in. I think on some level, it's obvious, right? You think about the travel for participants and their fans, the stuff that you just mentioned, like the destruction of green land to build venues. I remember this was part of what happened in Korea. Uh, you think about, I mean, Brenda just talked about capitalist surplus. Like, you think about the amount of trash that a mega event is going to produce when you bring all these people into a concentrated space. Um, it just seems obvious on its face when you really start to think of it through this lens, as Brenda was talking about, as you were talking about, lens. You really do start, <laughs> like, it makes your... I don't know, all the hairs on your arm stand up for like what this means to the environment. And I think about like last week we talked about in episode 202, the particular issues with playing soccer in Qatar, considering the extreme temperatures in the country, like talk about the environment's impact on the sport itself. But we also mentioned Qatar back in uh, in 2019 when the IAAF championships were there and all of the issues around mm. extreme temperature then. And they were trying to air condition outdoor stadiums <laughs> in order to make it possible to do these events and you think about like if this is the future is to just air condition a bunch of these massive spaces like that alone I don't know like mega events seem like the perfect distillation as they do for lots of things to think about these problems that that sports is participating in yeah and it, it's it's from the big like the air conditioners to all the little resources they they bring up, you know, water bottles and stuff like that. And, you know, to go back to Maddie's point, like these mega events are often really big drivers, you know, for women's sports. And yet, like if we do lose mega events, it's so bad for women's sports in theory. And yet there's no way to really do these sustainably. And so that's a really big problem. Um I do want to mention something that's going on on kind of the 
global scale. Um, there is a United Nations Climate Change Sports for Climate Action Framework. Um, and a couple of other organizations signed on to it on this Earth Day, uh, World Athletics and organizers for the World Athletics Indoor Championships uh, in Belgrade 22 signed on to this. Uh, the aim of the framework is for international federations, leagues, clubs, and event organizers to take collective action to limit global warming to the 1.5 Celsius degree rise, the levels agreed at in Paris during the climate change conference in 2015. Um, You know, the United Nations is really, I think it's interesting that they're organizing these, you know, seeing the role that sports have to play in this. But anytime it's, you know, Sebastian Coe and other, you know, of these leaders that haven't really shown us any reason to believe in that they mean what what they say, I look at events like this with a lot of skepticism. Although I do think one of the things that makes me somewhat hopeful is the voices of the youth. Jess? Yeah. So as Maddie mentioned at the top of the segment, climate change is racialized and it's gendered. And so it makes sense when we get to public advocacy that we'd see people of color and women and especially women of color speaking about the effects of climate change. And that it turns out that dynamic is true when it comes to athletes. So I want to play a couple clips from the 2019 United Nations Youth Climate Summit. First, here is gold medalist snowboarder we love her, Chloe Kim. She's talking about her fears about climate change. I'm so terrified that one day when I have a family, my kids are going to be like, Mom, what's snow? Is that like when the dinosaurs were around? So we have to keep fighting to save our planet. Some people won't listen, but we need to make them listen before it's too late. To everyone here, I wanted to tell you guys that you have a voice and never lose hope. We will make this change, and we will save our home. And next is Pita Taufatifua, a two-sport Olympian from Tonga who competed in both taekwondo and skiing. Now, Tonga is composed of 170 islands in the South Pacific, and I think that's an important context for what he spoke about at the summit. We're at the forefront of climate change. The seas are rising. They're, they're coming into our houses. You know, I'm here to advocate for the oceans that have looked after us since the beginning of time. You know, it's time for us to be looking after them. We've got young kids who are marching to help the planet. I mean, we, ha- we need to listen to these. Uh, we need to listen to these kids. It's their future that, that's in our hands. Malo Ofatu. And I'd just like to mention that there's another global organization that is focused on these issues and was particularly focused on the environment for Earth Day this year, Lareas, which is a global organization that has over 200 sports programs in 40 countries in the world. They put out a new environmental action toolkit, and it's pretty cool. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes on our website. It talks about how to launch and sustain a green team, what organizations can do collectively, what individuals, players, fans can do, and it provides a ton of resources. It's a great checklist for people within sporting organizations from like the top of the chain owners down to the fans who want to figure out how to make sport more sustainable. Uh, So it's really cool to see that we are now getting resources like this. It's literally a checklist. So you could just go down and check what it is that you're doing and not doing. And you can think about the ways that you could be more sustainable as an athlete and as a fan. 
I love that so much. Brenda, what are we seeing clubs doing right now? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I'm going to just be honest. Like when I I get so overwhelmed about this topic and I just feel like it seems terrible and scary and boring to start to like research it somehow. (laughs) Yeah, because it's too big. You can't like wrap your arms around it in a way that feels – it's so easy to like suddenly just tune out when as soon as you start looking at it. I agree. Exactly. And and so it's like Earth Day and then it feels like already co-opted and gimmicky and I'm depressed and I don't know what, you know, I know what my problem is, which is that this is horrific and apocalyptic and thus I want to do a show about something else. And so when I started to look at what some of the football clubs were doing, it really is actually very exciting and smart and it makes me feel the opposite so a couple of things um david goldblatt has written a lot about this he's been doing a lot of articles since 2019 he's a very well-known you know writer about football and this has become his new um raison d'etre right this is his this is dave's thing and so it's good to check him out he's written pamphlets for different alliances, like transportation alliances that are trying to reduce the carbon footprint. Um, but here's some of the things. Uh, one of the most exciting is a club called Forest Green Rovers. It's a professional football club. You can check them out. They play in like uh, the fourth tier of English football. And uh, they've been around since the 19th century. And they have gone UN certified zero carbon admissions. They only serve vegan food. Their new stadium is wooden and they have 100% renewable energy use. And it's real cool. Like the stadium is beautiful and and they did it with absolutely no footprint on the environment. Of course, it cannot be 80,000 seats. There are things you just can't have. And, you know, so it's like a 5,000 seater and it's like, right, but cool. You know, 5,000 people is a lot of people. I mean, you know, I've been with nobody during COVID. Especially if you pack them in. Yeah. You know, can't do that right now, but soon. Um, You know, soon, soon, soon. And so it's really gorgeous. I encourage you um, to take a look. Also, the Bundesliga, um, the clubs in Bundesliga are trying to figure out how to subsidize uh, public transportation. And that's mm. huge because of all the of all the way that global football impacts the environment, it's the travel. Yeah. Um, UEFA is offsetting um, the aviation emissions by reforestation programs, and so that's really exciting too. But all of this is, you know, really easy to get out of for some of these big organizations. So I liked looking at the clubs, and it it actually put a little spring in my step. And I thought to myself, I wonder what we can do at youth level soccer here in the U.S. We better start carpooling and stuff. (laughs) It didn't make me think like, wait a minute. (laughs) Well, it's so interesting you say that because I've been thinking so much about how COVID, you know, in a lot of ways, what we learned from sports during COVID is that they're much more flexible than these billionaire owners would have you believe, right? That change is so much more possible um, when it's necessary. And there was so much less travel during COVID. And so many of these leagues found ways to do things in single sites or even the NBA finding ways to limit their flights, right? If you go to one one part of the country, like you're playing 
back-to-backs, you know, against teams and you're not traveling quite as much. And, you know, stuff like that makes me really, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, it's sustainable or like mentally healthy for these teams and clubs to have bubble seasons. But what about mitigating the travel as much as possible, you know, within these seasons, you know, and trying to find ways that buses can be taken and the travel schedule makes geographical sense and results in fewer cross-country or, you know, inner-country, when we're talking about over in Europe, you know, flights um, and everything. And I hope that lessons like that do carry forward, right, with us, um, because that could make a big difference. Um, Jess, there was another uh, interesting kind of COVID adaptation we have here. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it's also a great example of the way that sports can encourage better local environmentalism, right? And so there was a, a club in Belgium, a soccer club in Belgium, uh, when they can't fill the stands, they decided instead to fill it with a bunch of old electronics in order to teach the community that these are things that can be recycled. So it was a big messaging about the importance of recycling, but you should, we'll link to this in the show notes, you should go look. It's really cute to see a lot of washers and refrigerators, and some of them were set up so they looked kind of like Wally. Uh, the little robot. So it was a it was a cute initiative, but the the point was to encourage recycling within the local community. So I liked that idea of using sport in that way in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very you know going forward. We've seen so much activism um, on racial and gender justice from our athletes, and it's probably unfair to like put this on them or to like hope that they, um, you know, incorporate this perfectly. But I want to, because of the power they have, um, you know, to continue to intersect climate justice as part of this activism, because we know that the most marginalized communities are again, the ones who are disproportionately impacted by climate change and, you know, we've already seen, I know Renee Montgomery um, was on some panels last year um, about racial and climate justice. Um, you have Midge Purse over in the NWSL, who is a climate activist and NWSL player and is on the Harvard board trying to um, be part of, you know, climate change initiatives. And, you know, most recently we've seen the WNBA take on um, as they are continuing, you know, their activism, um, they're doing, you know, health campaigns and trying to encourage people to get the vaccine, um, especially um, those in Black communities. And um, I do have faith that they're going to continue to lead us forward on the climate front as well, because um, they're so well organized and they seem to understand intersectionality better than any other group. And I think that um, ultimately, though, we're going to need the athletes to use their voices to fight for this stuff as well within the sports world, you know, and not just those young athletes kind of speaking at the global conferences, but the the biggest ones, you know, encouraging, you know, calling out their sponsors and their team owners and everything to um, include sustainability um, as part of these platforms. Um, again, it's, I think it's 
unfair that that burden falls to them. But maybe the reason I'm calling them out is because I have the most hope that they can make the change happen as opposed to these, you know, billionaires at top just like sitting on their wad of cash. One thing, though, that really interested me that I would have completely missed if I wasn't researching this um, is that there is a um, team in Dublin, Bohemians, which has been a member-owned team since 1890. This is a men's soccer team, and they've done a lot of um, messaging, welcoming refugees and anti-racism work. And they've recently hired um, world football's first climate justice officers. So they have someone making sure that their team is focused on leaving the smallest carbon footprint possible. And this is Sean McCabe. And I'm very interested in seeing what comes. It's a voluntary role, of course, right now. Um, But it's about... Um, activating the community, um, holding the community responsible, holding the club responsible, and keeping all the focus on uh, climate justice. Uh, they've been calling uh, football's first Greta Thunberg, of course, that's CNN's uh, title. We're sensationalizing things a bit, but I'm going to include this article from CNN in the notes because I think it's very interesting and I think goes with what I was saying before, that I hope something along these lines is the way that these clubs continue to prioritize this. Um, Jess? Yeah, and before we head out, I just want to remind everyone, we talked about uh, the intersection of climate change and sport back in episode 172. I think we're all very proud of that episode. And so I encourage people who care about this to go into... um, our archives and check out episode 172. And of course, we recently talked about the impact of the environment on refugee populations and the intersection of refugees and sport in episode 199. So I know we'll continue to talk about this as we move forward. Absolutely. And, um, you know, just to echo what we heard from Maddie at the beginning, this is going to and already is going to disproportionately impact women's sports. And so, Um, because we know that these billionaires are willing to do anything to fight for the preservation of men's sports in the face of anything. And so it's just important to kind of pay attention to where uh, what's happening on this front in the sports world. We're going to bring back Dr. Orr, who is highlighting a couple of organizations that are doing the work of bringing sports and climate change together. Protect Our Winters has an amazing roster, a ton of women on that athlete roster who go into schools on a regular basis, go and lobby at the federal government in Washington, D.C., and advocate for climate action that is really considerate of all of those intersectional aspects of how women get hit first, how people of color get hit first, um, and how we can do a better job in the sports community and in the outdoor community of making our space more inclusive and also making it more resilient to climate change. Um, Another organization that's really amazing and doing cool work lately is Eco Athletes. Uh, It's based in New York, but they have athletes really all over the country. And, you know, you have Mara Abbott, who competed in cycling at the Rio 2016 Olympics, and Elena Olson on the U.S. women's rugby team. A number of women who really stand out and are out in their communities Um, helping to take care of the community after major events happen, but also at the forefront of demanding action 
from the sport industry and demanding um, consideration for things like reducing our energy use and reducing water use and being more considerate of the biodiversity where we live, work, and play. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week's interview, which you'll get to hear in full on Thursday, our Dr. Amir Rose Davis talks to Andrea Williams, author of Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley, and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. I do think Effa just, you know, by virtue of being a woman, saw things and understood things about the future of Black baseball in a way that men weren't thinking about. The co-owners that she's with who are, who are less inclined to speak up. But it's also the, the Black press who is doubling down on Jackie and the other guys who, who get signed and are completely abandoning, you know, Black baseball as if, you know, it's somehow unnecessary at this point. It's now, now Black baseball is obsolete because here we are, we have arrived. And Eva's like, how can you not see that it is not going to be this automatic thing that we are, we are for sure going to lose something in the process? All right, friends, it is time for the eco-friendly burn pile. Brenda, can you get us started? Sure. Um, So I'm putting on the burn pile this week. uh, It's sort of like a, uh, ooh, like a, like a fire starter, like one of those things you put in. I'm not, it's not fully fleshed out because we're waiting for information, but apparently it comes um, from good sources. The Faroe Islands Football Association has instructed uh, clubs to ban players from wearing rainbow bands in solidarity with that LGBTQ community. And the players were told that they would be disqualified from any competition if they continue to use them. For people that don't know, Faroe Islands has its own football association as part of the Danish kingdom. Um, it actually won uh, an international competitive match against Austria in the 1990s. So although it's very small, um, it is significant. And uh, the president of the Faroe Islands uh, Football Association is Christian Andreasen. And it is unclear what exactly prompted this, except to say that it's been notable that the Faroe Islands um, was one of the last, if not the last, UEFA 
uh, countries to ban discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So what the fuck Faroe Islands for right now, your association's decision is going on the burn pile. I will update as more becomes clear about why and uh, hopefully FIFA um, puts the puts the kibosh on this right away. Burn. 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 Jess? So this is a hard week to pick a single topic. So I do want to mention an in-depth report at the LA Times about the USC Song Girls, the school spirit squad. Quote, 10 former song girls described to the LA Times a toxic culture within the famed collegiate dance team that included longtime former coach Lori Nelson rebuking women publicly for their eating habits, personal appearance, and sex lives. So mini burn on that. For my main burn, I want to do a follow along to our discussion of women's March Madness and Shireen's burn about the NCAA Women's Volleyball Tournament. This week, Molly Hensley Clancy at the Washington Post published a piece about the differences between the men's NCAA baseball tournament and the women's NCAA softball tournament. None of this will surprise anyone, but it's still worth recapping some of what she covered. Both tournaments happen in front of sellout crowds, and they draw similar audiences on ESPN. But as Hensley Clancy writes, quote, softball athletes play in a stadium with less than half the capacity and subpar facilities, and their tournament is condensed into a much smaller window than the men's. And that's after what coaches describe as a years-long battle with the NCAA for such basic amenities as bathrooms, which were eventually added, and showers, which they're still waiting for. I think what really got me in this piece were the quotes. Here's what Jackie Joseph, who has spent three decades as a head coach at Michigan State, said. Quote, Women's basketball is the premier women's sport. When I saw that, what I wanted to say is, imagine how we feel, the rest of us. They're the chosen ones, and they're treated like afterthoughts. What's lower than an afterthought? That's us. That just breaks my heart. One specific issue, this one really burns my butt, is that the women play at a much smaller venue. There's seat 13,000, and they sell it out almost immediately, like overnight. The men's stadium holds 24,000 and can expand up to 35,000. One coach said, quote, I think we could easily get 20,000 fans just like the men, but they won't give us the chance. And you know, you just know that this is going to be used against the women to say they don't pull in the same money or whatever, right? And then there's also the women's schedule. It's condensed down into seven days as compared to 12 for the men. Hensley Clancy writes, quote, in the women's tournament, teams get a single rest day and are asked to play double headers if they lose an early game. There is no room for weather delays and no days of rest before the final series. In the men's tournament, they are frequent rest days and teams can have as long as three days off before the final begin. That is brutal to the bodies of these softball players. I'm just fucking tired of this shit. Next year is the 50th anniversary of Title IX. 50 years. I've been thinking a lot about how hard the NCAA fought Title IX and about how the NCAA was not created to include women's sports. And that still shows half a century later. I want to end with a quote from Carol Hutchins, the head coach at Michigan. She said, quote, The NCAA never asks, what's the least we can do for the men? With the women, that's always the question. We have to fight to get things. We're fighting with the NCAA, and it all comes down to they don't want to spend the same on the women. Burn. 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 On that note, I I have two burns, but I want to start with the cancellation of the Women's Hockey World Championships once again. So, um, you know, on that that kind of note, um, this decision was just made this Wednesday by health officials in Nova Scotia because of COVID concerns. 
Um, the decision was made as some teams were already en route traveling as players and teams had been quarantining and doing all of the right things in order to get there. And um, while, of course, everyone is concerned, you know, about safety, the truth is there were no positive tests from the players and the players were holding up their end of the bargain. And the most infuriating thing is that the IIHF had no contingency plan for the women's tournament, um, something they've had for all of their men's world championships. I'm going to read some of Kendall Coyne Schofield, uh, USA Players Statement, which will just, I think, remind you a lot of what Jess just said. Um, there was not one positive test uh, case. Every single country player and staff member committed to the protocols the Nova Scotia health officials outlined, and we successfully did everything that was asked of us in order to safely compete until we were told we couldn't. We all are wrecked, devastated for so many reasons. But to learn that there was no contingency plan and the IIHF is letting 250 of its best players in the world return to their homes today with we are seeking new dates is simply unacceptable. Does that mean we should keep training every single day like we have been since the last international competition two years ago without knowing when or even if it should be played? Should our staff be prepared to tell the families and jobs they may be packing up for for another potential 31 days if new dates are being solved? This response shows the lack of care the IIHF had when it comes to making sure the women's worlds were successful like the other international hockey events we have so joyfully watched over the last year. Those tournaments had contingency plans and plans to pivot the locations if the dialogue between the local health officials and the tournament couldn't be mutually agreed upon like so many of us. I'm tired of saying this, but even more exhausted from feeling it, women's hockey once again, deserves more and better. I'm going to ask you to hold your burns because I just want to throw one other thing on the burn pile, which is um, this week, you know, Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd, something we all saw with our own eyes. And while it is good that he was found guilty, um, it's little comfort because George Floyd is not alive and because Black people continue to be killed by police and mostly without impunity. Um, but of course, we saw a lot of empty statements come out from sports teams um, and leagues in the wake of this verdict. Some good, some not even saying the name George Floyd. But I think the absolute worst was an image from the Las Vegas Raiders NFL team, which simply said, I can breathe with the date of the verdict on the uh, graphic. This graphic was pinned to the Raiders Twitter page. Um, despite much criticism of people reminding um, owner Mark Davis directly that this is uh, a phrase cops have co-opted for the Blue Lives Matter movement, uh, Mark Davis said he was going to continue to keep it up there and next time he'd do more research. But for now, this statement, which is horribly insensitive, um, stands. And so um, both of those things on to the burn pile. Burn. 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 All right. So 
On a positive note, we've got some torch bearers this week. Um, our record setter of the week is a thing Mo, a freshman at Texas A&M, set a collegiate record in women's outdoor 800 meters um, with 157.73. That is faster than the Olympic qualifying standard and is the 10th fastest time for a U.S. woman ever. Uh, Jess, we've got a few uh, literal trophy holders this week who are NCAA champs of the week. University of Michigan won its first ever National Collegiate Women's Gymnastics Championship last weekend. They had a program best score of 198.2500. I assume all those numbers matter a lot. The telecast of the finals aired on ABC for the first time ever and averaged 808,000 viewers. This was the most viewed gymnastics telecast in a decade and the most viewed collegiate gymnastics meet ever on any ESPN affiliated network put this stuff on TV. The Stanford Cardinal took home the men's gymnastics championship and the Kentucky Wildcats women's volleyball team, which defeated Texas in four sets to win the program's first national championship on Saturday night. Woohoo! And then we've got some international champs for this week. Bren. Yes, the UMMC Ekaterinburg won the Euro Women's League Championship. That's that's basketball for the third time in a row. Six-time total by beating Performerias Avenida, 78-68. Brianna Stewart was named the Final Four MVP for averaging 14.5 points, seven rebounds, and three assists per game in the tournament. This is the sixth title for player Alba Torrens. Torrens has now tied the EuroLeague women record with Diana Taurasi and Natalia Viru. Also, Australian rules football, the Brisbane Lions are AFLW premieres for the first time. They stunned the Adelaide Crows. I, I, these are such good names. 38 to 20 in the final. All right. And for the Torchbearer of the Week, can I get a drum roll, please? All right, she's back again, but she really <laughs> mm-hmm. keeps earning it, friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it's true. Uh, Simone Biles for blazing yet another new trail, this time ditching Nike to sign a contract with Athleta. And this contract was first reported by the great Louise uh, Radnofsky of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I'm honestly not sure if it's Athleta or Athleta, but I'm sure because Simone is now the leader, I will know very soon. This is a uh, women's focused uh, sports group owned by the Gap Company. Uh, Biles isn't the first to sign with them. Um, Athleta, I'll go with that. First signed a partnership in 2019 with sprinting champion Allison Felix, the former Nike athlete who had criticized the company for failing to support pregnant athletes. Biles and saying what attracted her to Athleta said, I felt it wasn't just about my achievements. It's what I stood for and how they were going to help me use my voice and be a voice for females and kids. I feel like they were going to support me, not just as an athlete, but as an individual outside of the gym. And what is incredibly exciting about this, even more so, is that, uh, Athleta is going to support the Biles' Gold Over America Tour, um, a tour that they plan to run uh, after the Olympics this year, that if USA Gymnastics decides to hold its own post-Olympics tour, which it usually does, this tour will be a direct competitor to that. 
Um, and uh, the company's also going to develop an activewear with Biles, um, who's going to collaborate, of course, with the design team. Um, it is so big to see a top female athlete like Biles right before the Olympics ditch the company that everyone has told women is the dream company to be with and um, go with a brand that's going to fully support her and treat her as a superstar. Over and over again, we are seeing those in women's sports really acknowledge the power they have. And we are seeing brands who are willing to invest in them if the typical um, stakeholders aren't. So I know I've talked, rambled on a long time, but I am so excited about this. <laughs> okay, what is good? Bren? Uh, <laughs> you can do it. It's a tough one. So really, really, this week is hard. Okay. I got it. I got it. Um, I am teaching a women's studies course. Um, it's an intro course to women, genders, and sexualities. And I have, and I'm I'm not meaning this as 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 derogatory towards my other classes, the best students this semester. And grading is still painful and it's still horrific. Um, but I asked this essay question, which is about how economic changes, like big global economic changes, shaped women's experiences in the global South. And I just got these amazing essays. Like, I'm embarrassed about how high the grades are. I mean, I'm happy about it. I'm thrilled about it. But I just keep – I'm like, I'm like, well, can I take points off for, like, spelling? Like, this person's going to get an A anyway. Like, do I feel comfortable with, like, 100? Do I give it 100? Is this the best essay I can conceive of? And they're just so good and they're not plagiarized. So there's my what's good. There's women's studies, shout out, women's studies 001 at Hofstra University. You are whip smart. That is awesome. I want to share um, a couple of things on my end. I have spent a lot of the past couple months feeling really bad and not quite knowing why and uh, getting worse and worse. And um, that is shitty. (laughs) I do not recommend that. Um, But I think I finally... um, What I did do was use the little energy I had um, and get help from family and friends. Um, I got to some doctors, got some blood work done, got some medicine changes. And I think I've, I don't know if I figured it all out, of course, but I've got some answers that have me hopeful and have me feeling better um, for the first time in a long time. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, if you've ever suffered from depression or some sort of kind of like, chronic illness that isn't just like, you know, very obvious, like the moment you start to feel better after having felt really bad for so long, it's like light bulbs going off within you. And like it, it, it almost puts into perspective how bad you were feeling, you know, because it's like, oh, um, so I am, uh, I'm just feeling very grateful about that. And I got my second vaccine, uh, yesterday and I didn't, I was, af- I was afraid I was gonna be like dying through this recording today, but I'm not, I'm feeling fine with that. So, you know, here's to health and an encouragement to all of our flamethrowers to try. And if you're feeling really shitty, try and find people who will help you because we should not all feel shitty all the time. It's not normal. Jess. Well, 
your news, Lens. That's what's good for me right now. That makes me really happy to hear. <laughs> uh, I want to tell our listeners about a great documentary. It's tonight, uh, before we record, you know, Sunday morning. So the Oscars are tonight. And there is this Romanian film called Collective that is nominated for both foreign language film and documentary. Uh, we'll see if it wins anything. But it is so interesting about there was a horrific fire at an at a nightclub in Romania the nightclub was called collective um, where more people ended up dying after uh, than during the actual fire and it was tied to corruption in the hospitals there and there was a sports daily that was very good uh, at investigative journalism because they had gone after corruption within sports within Romania. They took on the corruption within the health department and within hospitals. And there was a documentary filmmaker along for the ride. And so it's very much got that spotlight feel. So if you're like me and you love to watch investigative journalists do their work and especially as a collective i mean talk about the importance of a newsroom and talk about the importance of resources and people just following the story and having the space and the time and the guts to do it uh collective was just you know one of those i was it's corny as hell but like there was a moment where the main guy the editor is on a national program and defending what uh, what he's done. And the, the other guy asked him, like, what is your goal here? As if there must be some kind of, you know, something beyond just reporting. And he's like, there is no goal. I'm just trying to show people the powers that uh, affect their lives. And I just felt this real corny um, moment as an investigative journalist where I was like, yes. So anyway, that made me watching Collective this week uh, really felt great. I mean, it, it has the possibility of making you feel bad <laughs> because there's so much corruption within Romania and it's not like it ends on like, we fixed it all kind of note. But it is a hell of a thing to watch all these people work together to fight the system uh, and to just, I, it, it's a really great documentary. Well, look, I've got to say for what we're watching this week, my attention is going to be on getting back focus on this NWSL Challenge Cup. Um, as I've been feeling bad, I really haven't had the mental space to be following sports of any kind. So I'm uh, now that I'm feeling better, I, I got to get caught up and watch that. And I think that's the main thing, you know, um, WNBA training camp is starting back up, ranching closer to the NBA playoffs. We'll have the NFL draft. These are the big, of course, American things. Baseball is uh, baseball. It is continuing and getting in the groove. Um, anything I'm not mentioning? I will say for me, because this is my new bandwagon as I am paying attention to the MLS way more than I ever have in my entire life. I have now watched my second match what? last night that Austin actually won three to one. That was super exciting. It was their first win. So MLS is happening, everybody, in case you forgot, as I normally do. Um, and of course, another round of Women's Champ League semifinals happening uh, this weekend as you're listening to them. So please tune into that. Um, and we want to thank all of our supporters, as always, patreon.com slash burn it all down. Um, it really doesn't take much to make a big difference and help make this podcast possible. You know, follow us on Twitter at burn it down pod, burn it all down pod at gmail.com. Um, 
we got our website where you can get transcripts and show notes and all of that fun stuff. Uh, we want to thank our producer, Tressa Versteg, and our social media guru, Shelby Weldon, uh, for helping us get this podcast out every week. And we'll talk to you all soon. To quote our Brenda, burn on, not out.